Chapter 32 of The Deluge, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Deluge, Volume 2, by Henrik Sienkiewicz. Translated by Jeremiah Curtin, 1835-1906. Chapter 32 Czarniecki, in truth, did not even dare to think that the marshal of the kingdom would put himself under his command. He wished merely joint action, and he feared that even that would not be attained because of the great ambition of Lubomirsky, for the proud magnate had mentioned more than once to his officers that he wished to attack the Swedes independently for thus he could effect something. But if he and Charnyetsky won a victory together, the whole glory would flow to Charnyetsky. Such was the case, in fact. Charnyetsky understood the marshal's reasons and was troubled. He was reading now, for the tenth time, the copy of the letter which he had sent from Shevorsk, wishing to see if he had written anything to offend so irritable a man as Lubomirsky. He regretted certain phrases. Finally, he began to regret, on the whole, that he had sent the letter. Therefore, he was sitting gloomy in his quarters, and every little while he approached the window and looked out on the road to see if the envoys were not returning. The officers saw him through the window and divined what was passing in his mind, for evident trouble was on his forehead. But look, said Polonovsky to Pan Mihao, there will be nothing pleasant, for the castellan's face has become spotted, and that is a bad sign. Charnyetsky's face bore numerous traces of smallpox, and in moments of great emotion or disquiet, it was covered with white and dark spots. As he had sharp features, a very high forehead, and cloudy Jupiter brows, a bent nose, and a glance cutting straight through, when, in addition, those spots appeared, he became terrible. The Cossacks in their time called him the spotted dog, but in truth he was more like a spotted eagle, and when he led men to the attack, and his burka spread out like great wings, the likeness struck both his own men and the enemy. He roused fear in these and those. During the Cossack Wars, leaders of powerful bands lost their heads when forced to act against Charnyetsky. Khmelnytsky himself feared him, but especially the counsels which he gave the king. They brought upon the Cossacks the terrible defeat of Berestechko, but his fame increased chiefly after Berestechko when, together with the Tartars, he passed over the steppes like a flame, crushed the uprisen crowds, took towns and trenches by storm, rushing with the speed of a whirlwind from one end of the Ukraine to the other. With this same raging endurance was he plucking the Swedes now. Charnyetsky does not knock out my men, he steals them away, said Karl Gustav. But Charnyetsky was tired of stealing away. He thought that the time had come to strike, but he lacked artillery and infantry altogether, without which nothing decisive could be done, nothing important effected. 
Hence his eagerness for a junction with Lubomirsky, who had a small number of cannon, it is true, but brought with him infantry composed of mountaineers. These, though not overmuch trained as yet, had still been under fire more than once, and might, for want of better, be used against the incomparable infantry legions of Karl Gustav. Czarniecki, therefore, was as if in a fever. Not being able to endure in the house, he went outside, and, seeing Vordyovsky and Polanovsky, he asked, Are the envoys not in sight? It is clear that they are glad to see them, answered Vordyovsky. They are glad to see them, but not glad to read my letter, or the marshal would have sent his answer. Pan Kastelen, said Polanovsky, whom Czarniecki trusted greatly, why be careworn? If the marshal comes, well. If not, we will attack as of old. As it is, blood is flowing from the Swedish pot, and we know that when a pot once begins to leak, everything will run out of it. There is a leak in the Commonwealth too, said Czarniecki. If the Swedes escape this time, they will be reinforced. Succour will come to them from Prussia. Our chance will be lost. Then he struck his side with his hand in sign of impatience. Just then was heard the tread of horses and the bass voice of Zagwoba singing, Kashka to the bakehouse went her way, and Stach said to her, Take me in, let me in, my love. For the snow is falling and the wind is blowing, where shall I, poor fellow, put my head till morning? It is a good sign they are returning joyously, cried Polanovsky. That moment the envoys, seeing Charnetsky, sprang from their saddles, gave their horses to an attendant, and went quickly to the entrance. Zagwoba threw his cap suddenly into the air, and imitating the voice of the marshal so excellently that whoever was not looking on might be deceived, cried, Vivat Pan Charnetsky, our leader! The castellan frowned and asked quickly, Is there a letter for me? There is not, answered Zagwoba. There is something better. The marshal with his army passes voluntarily under command of your worthiness. Charnitsky pierced him with a look, then turned to Pan Yan as if wishing to say, Speak you, for this one has been drinking. Zagwoba was, in fact, a little drunk but Skshetovsky confirmed his words, hence astonishment was reflected on the face of the castellan. Come with me, said he to the two. I beg you also, said he to Polonovsky and Pan Mihal. All entered his room. They had not sat down yet when Charnetsky asked, What did he say to my letter? He said nothing, answered Zagwoba, and why he did not will appear at the end of my story, but now... Incipiam, I will begin. Here he told all as it had happened, how he had brought the marshal to such a favourable decision. Charnitsky looked at him with growing astonishment. Polonovsky seized his own head. Pan Mihal's moustaches were quivering. I have not known you hitherto, as God is dear to me, cried Charnitsky at last. I cannot believe my own ears. 
They have long since called me Ulysses, said Zagwaba modestly. Where is my letter? Here it is. I must forgive you for not delivering it. He is a finished rogue. A vice-chancellor might learn from him how to make treaties. As God lives, if I were king, I would send you to Tsarogrod. If he were there, a hundred thousand Turks would be here now, cried Pan Mihao. To which Zagwaba said, Not one, but two hundred thousand, as true as I live. And did the marshal hesitate at nothing? asked Charnetsky. He? He swallowed all that I put to his lips, just as a fat gander gulps pellets. His eyes were covered with mist. I thought that from delight he would burst, as a Swedish bomb bursts. With flattery that man might be taken to hell. If it can only be ground out on the Swedes, if it can only be ground out, and I have hope that it will be, said Charnyetsky, delighted. You are a man adroit as a fox, but do not make too much sport of the marshal, for another would not have done what he has today. Much depends on him. We shall march to Sandomierz itself over the estates of the Lubomirskis, and the marshal can raise with one word the whole region, command peasants to injure crossings, burn bridges, hide provisions in the forests. You have rendered a service which I shall not forget till death, but I must thank the marshal, for as I believe he has not done this from mere vanity. Then he clapped his hands and cried, A horse for me at once! Let us forge the iron while it is hot! Then he turned to the colonels, Come, all of you gentlemen, with me! so that the suite may be the most imposing. And must I go too? asked Zagwaba. You have built the bridge between me and the marshal. It is proper that you be the first to pass over. Besides, I think that they will see you gladly. Come, come, lord brother, or I shall say that you wished to leave a half-finished work. Hard to refuse. I must draw my belt tighter, however, lest I shake into nothing. Not much strength is left me, unless I fortify it with something. But with what? Much has been told me of the castellan's mead, which I have not tasted as yet, and I should like to know if it is better than the marshal's. We will drink a stirrup cup now, but after our return we shall not limit the cups in advance. You will find a couple of decanters of it in your own quarters. Then the castellan commanded to bring goblets, they drank enough for brightness and good humour, mounted and rode away. The marshal received Charnetsky with open arms, entertained him with food and drink, did not let him go till morning. But in the morning the two armies were joined and marched farther under command of Charnetsky. Near Shenyava the Poles attacked the Swedes again with such effect that they cut the rearguard to pieces and brought disorder into the main army. Only at daybreak did the artillery disperse them. At Lezhaisk, Charnetsky attacked with still greater vigour. Considerable detachments of the Swedes were mired in soft places caused by rains and inundations, and those fell into the hands of the Poles. The roads became of the worst for the Swedes, exhausted, Hungry and tortured by desire of sleep, the regiments barely marched, 
more and more soldiers stopped on the way. Some were found so terribly reduced that they no longer wished to eat or drink. They only begged for death. Others lay down and died on hillocks. Some lost presence of mind and looked with the greatest indifference on the approaching pursuers. Foreigners, who accounted frequently in the ranks of the Swedes, began to disappear from the camp and go over to Czarnitsky. Only the unbroken spirit of Carl Gustav held the remnant of its dying strength in the whole army. For not only did an enemy follow the army, various parties under unknown leaders and bands of peasants crossed its road continually. Those bodies, unformed and not very numerous, could not, it is true, strike it with offensive warfare, but they wearied it mortally. And wishing to instill into the Swedes the conviction that Tartars had already come with assistance, all the Polish troops gave forth the Tartar shout, therefore Allah, Allah was heard night and day without a moment's cessation. The Swedish soldiers could not draw breath, could not put aside their armour for an instant. More than once a few men alarmed the whole camp. Horses fell by tens and were eaten immediately, for the transport of provisions had become impossible. From time to time the Polish horsemen found Swedish corpses terribly disfigured. Here they recognised at once the hands of peasants. The greater part of the villages in the triangle between the San and the Vistula belonged to the marshal and his relatives. Therefore, all the peasants in those parts rose up as one man, for the marshal, unsparing of his own fortune, had announced that whoever took up arms would be freed from subjection. Scarcely had this news gone the round of the region, when the peasants put their scythes on staffs and began to bring Swedish heads into camp. They brought them in every day till Lubomirsky was forced to prohibit that custom as unchristian. Then they brought in gloves and boots. The Swedes, driven to desperation, flayed those who fell into their hands, and the war became more and more dreadful. Some of the Polish troops adhered yet to the Swedes, but they adhered only through fear. On the road to Lezhysk, many of them deserted. Those who remained made such tumults in the camp daily that Karl Gustav gave orders to shoot a number of officers. This was the signal for a general withdrawal, which was effected sabre in hand. Few, if any, Poles remained, but Czarniecki, gaining new strength, attacked with still greater vigour. The marshal gave most effectual assistance. During this period, which by the way was short, the nobler sides of Lubomirsky's nature gained, perhaps, the upper hand over his pride and self-love. Therefore he omitted no toil, he spared neither his health nor his person. He led squadrons frequently, gave the enemy no rest, and as he was a good soldier, he rendered good services. These, added to his later ones, would have secured him a glorious memory in the nation, were it not for that shameless rebellion which toward the end of his career he raised in order to hinder the reform of the Commonwealth. But at this time he did everything to win glory, and he covered himself with it as with a robe. Pan Vitovsky, the castellan of Saint-Domierge, 
an old and experienced soldier, vied with him. Vitovsky wished to equal Charnyetsky himself, but he could not, for God had denied him greatness. All three crushed the Swedes more and more, and with such effect that the infantry and cavalry regiments, to whom it came to form the rearguard on the retreat, marched with so much fear that a panic arose among them from the slightest cause. Then Karl Gustav decided to march always with the rearguard, so as to give courage by his presence. But in the very beginning, he almost paid for this position with his life. It happened that, having with him a detachment of the lifeguards, the largest of all the regiments, for the soldiers in it were selected from the whole Scandinavian people, the king stopped for refreshment at the village of Rudnik. When he had dined with the parish priest, he decided to sleep a little, since he had not closed his eyes the night preceding. The lifeguards surrounded the house to watch over the safety of the king. Meanwhile, the priest's horse-boy stole away from the village and, coming up to a mare in the field, sprang upon her colt and raced off to Charnyetsky. Charnyetsky was ten miles distant at this time, but his vanguard, composed of the regiment of Prince Dmitri Vishnyovetsky, was marching under Shandarovsky, the lieutenant, about two miles behind the Swedes. Shandarovsky was just talking to Rokhovalsky, who had ridden up that moment with orders from Charnyetsky, when suddenly both saw the lad flying toward them at all horse speed. "'What devil is that racing up so?' asked Shandarovsky, and besides on a colt. "'Some village lad,' said Kowalski. Meanwhile, the boy had ridden to the front of the rank and only stopped when the colt, frightened at horses and men, stood on his hind legs and dug his hoofs into the earth. The youth sprang off and, holding the colt by the mane, bowed to the knights. "'Well, what have you to say?' asked the lieutenant, approaching him. "'The Swedes are with us at the priest's house.' They say that the king himself is among them, said the youth with sparkling eyes. Many of them? Not more than two hundred horses. Shandarovsky's eyes now flashed in their turn, but he was afraid of an ambush, therefore he looked threateningly at the boy and asked, Who sent you? Who was to send me? I jumped myself on the colt, I came near falling and lost my cap. It is well that the Swedish carrion did not see me. Truth was beating out of the sunburned face of the youth. He had evidently a great animosity against the Swedes. He was panting, his cheeks were burning. He stood before the officers, holding the mane of the colt with one hand, his hair disordered, the shirt open on his bosom. Where is the rest of the Swedish army? asked the lieutenant. At daybreak so many passed that we could not count them. Those went farther. Only cavalry remained. But there is one sleeping at the priests, and they say that he is the king. Boy, answered Shandarovsky, if you are lying, your head will fall. But if you speak the truth, ask what you please. As true as I live, I want nothing unless the great mighty lord officer would command to give me a sabre. 
Give him some blade, cried Shandarovsky to his attendants, completely convinced now. The other officers fell to inquiring of the boy where the house was, where the village, what the Swedes were doing. The dogs! They are watching. If you go straight, they will see you. But I will take you behind the alder grove. Orders were given at once, and the squadron moved on, first at a trot, and then at a gallop. The youth rode before the first rank bareback on his colt without a bridle. He urged the colt with his heels, and every little while looked with sparkling eyes on the naked sabre. When the village was in sight, he turned out of the willows, and led by a somewhat muddy road to the alder grove, in which it was still muddier. Therefore they slackened the speed of the horses. Watch, said the boy, they are about ten rods on the right from the end of the alder grove. They advanced now very slowly, for the road was difficult and heavy. The cavalry horses sank frequently to their knees. At last the alder grove began to grow thinner, and they came to the edge of the open space. Not more than three hundred yards distant, they saw a broad square rising somewhat, and in it the priest's house surrounded by poplars, among which were to be seen the tops of straw beehives. On the square were two hundred horsemen in rimmed helmets and breastplates. The great horsemen sat on enormous lean horses and were in readiness, some with rapiers at their shoulders, others with muskets on their thighs. But they were looking in another direction toward the main road, from which alone they expected the enemy. A splendid blue standard with a golden lion was waving above their heads. Farther on around the house stood guards by twos. One was turned toward the alder grove, but because the sun shone brightly and struck his eyes, and in the alders, which were already covered with thick leaves, it was almost dark, he could not see the Polish horsemen. In Shandarovsky, a fiery horseman, the blood began to boil like water in a pot, but he restrained himself and waited till the ranks should be in order. Meanwhile, Roch Kowalski put his heavy hand on the shoulder of the youth. Listen, horsefly, said he, have you seen the king? I saw him, great mighty lord, whispered the lad. How did he look? How can he be known? He is terribly black in the face, and wears red ribbons at his side. Did you see his horse? The horse is black, with a white face. Look out and show him to me. I will, but shall we go quickly? Shut your mouth. Here they were silent, and Roch began to pray to the Most Holy Lady to permit him to meet Karl and to direct his hand at the meeting. The silence continued still a moment, then the horse under Shandarovsky himself snorted. At that, the horseman on guard looked, quivered as if something had been thrown at his saddle, and fired his pistol. Allah! Allah! Kill! Slay! Uhau, slay was heard in the alder grove, and the squadron, coming out of the shadow like lightning, rushed at the Swedes. 
they struck into the smoke before all could turn front to them and a terrible hewing began only sabres and rapiers were used for no man had time to fire in the twinkle of an eye the poles pushed the swedes to the fence which fell with a rattle under the pressure of the horses rumps and the poles began to slash them so madly that they were crowded and confused twice they tried to close and twice torn asunder they formed two separate bodies which in a twinkle divided into smaller groups at last they were scattered as peas thrown by a peasant through the air with a shovel all at once were heard despairing voices the king the king save the king but karl gustav at the first moment of the encounter with pistols in hand and a sword in his teeth rushed out the trooper who held the horse at the door gave him the beast that moment the king sprang on and turning the corner rushed between the poplars and the beehives to escape by the rear from the circle of battle reaching the fence he spurred his horse sprang over and fell into the group of his men who were defending themselves against the right wing of the poles who had just surrounded the house and were fighting with the swedes behind the garden to the road cried karl gustav and overturning with the hilt of his sword the polish horseman who was raising his sabre above him with one spring he came out of the whirl of the fight the swedes broke the polish rank and sprang after him with all their force as a herd of deer hunted by dogs rush whither they are led by their leader the polish horsemen turned their horses after them and the chase began both came out on the high road from rudnik to boyanovka they were seen from the front yard where the main battle was raging and just then it was that the voices were heard crying the king the king save the king but the swedes in the front yard were so pressed by shandorovsky that they could not think even of saving themselves the king raced on then with a party of not more than twelve men while after him were chasing nearly thirty and at the head of them all roch kowalski the lad who was to point out the king was involved somewhere in the general battle but roch himself recognized karl gustav by the knot of red ribbons then he thought that his opportunity had come he bent in the saddle pressed his horse with the spurs and rushed on like a whirlwind the pursued straining the last strength from their horses stretched along over the broad road but the swifter and lighter polish horses began soon to gain on them roch came up very quickly with the hindmost swede he rose in his stirrups for a better blow and cut terribly with one awful stroke he took off the arm and the shoulder and rushed on like the wind fastening his eyes again on the king the next horseman was black before his eyes he hurled him down he split the head and the helmet of the third and tore farther having the king and the king only in his eye now the horses of the swedes began to pant and fall a crowd of polish horsemen overtook them and cut down the riders in a twinkle roch had already passed horses and men so as not to lose time the distance between him and karl gustav began to decrease there were only two men between him and the king 
Now an arrow, sent from a bow by some one of the Poles, sang near the ear of Pan Roch and sank in the loins of the rider rushing before him. The man trembled to the right and the left. At last he bent backward, bellowed with an unearthly voice, and fell from the saddle. Between Roch and the king there was now only one man, but that one, wishing evidently to save the king, instead of helping, turned his horse. Kowalski came up, and a cannonball does not sweep a man from the saddle as he hurled him to the ground. Then, giving a fearful shout, he rushed forward like a furious stag. The king might perhaps have met him, and would have perished inevitably, but others were flying on behind Roch, and arrows began to whistle. Any moment one of them might wound his horse. The king, therefore, pressed his heels more closely, bent his head to the mane, and shot through the space in front of him like a sparrow pursued by a hawk. But Roch began not only to prick his own horse with the spurs, but to beat him with the side of the sabre, and so they sped on one after the other. Trees, stones, willows flashed before their eyes. The wind whistled in their ears. The king's hat fell from his head. At last he threw down his purse, thinking that the pitiless rider might be tempted by it and leave the pursuit. But Kowalski did not look at the purse, and rolled his horse on with more and more power till the beast was groaning from effort. Rock had evidently forgotten himself altogether, for racing onward he began to shout in a voice in which, besides threats, there was also a prayer, Stop! For God's mercy! Then the king's horse stumbled so violently that if the king had not held the bridle with all his power, the beast would have fallen. Roch bellowed like an aurochs. The distance dividing him from Karl Gustav had decreased notably. After a while, the steed stumbled a second time, and again, before the king brought him to his feet, Roch had approached a number of yards. Then he straightened himself in the saddle as if for a blow. He was terrible. His eyes were bursting out. His teeth were gleaming from under his reddish moustaches. One more stumble of the horse, another moment, and the fate of the Commonwealth, of all Sweden, of the entire war, would have been decided. But the king's horse began to run again, and the king, turning, showed the barrels of two pistols, and twice did he fire. One of the bullets shattered the knee of Kowalski's horse. He reared, then fell on his forefeet, and dug the earth with his nose. The king might have rushed that moment on his pursuer, and thrust him through with his rapier, but at the distance of two hundred yards other Polish horsemen were flying forward, so he bent down again in his saddle, and shot on like an arrow propelled from the bow of a Tartar. Kowalski freed himself from his horse. He looked for a while unconsciously at the fleeing man, then staggered like one drunk, sat on the road, and began to roar like a bear. But the king was each instant farther, farther, farther. He began to diminish, to melt, and then vanished in the dark belt of pine scrub. Meanwhile, with shouting and roaring, came on Kowalski's companions. There were fifteen of them whose horses held out. One brought the king's purse, another his hat, on which black ostrich feathers were fastened with diamonds. 
These two began to cry out, These are yours, comrade. They belong to you of right. Others asked, Do you know whom you are chasing? That was Karl himself. As God is true, in his life he has never fled before any man as before you. You have covered yourself with immense glory. And how many men did you put down before you came up with the king? You lacked only little of freeing the commonwealth in one flash with your sabre. Take the purse. Take the hat. The horse was good, but you can buy ten such with these treasures. Roch gazed at his comrades with dazed eyes. At last he sprang up and shouted, I am Kowalski, and this is Pani Kowalski. Go to all the devils. His mind is disturbed, cried they. Give me a horse, I'll catch him yet, shouted Roch. But they took him by the arms, and though he struggled, they brought him back to Rudnik, pacifying and comforting him along the road. You gave him Peter, cried they. See what has come to this victor, this conqueror of so many towns and villages. Ha ha, he has found out Polish cavaliers. He will grow tired of the Commonwealth. He has come to close quarters. Vivat Roch Kowalski. Vivat, vivat, the most manful cavalier, the pride of the whole army. And they fell to drinking out of their canteens. They gave Roch one, and he emptied the bottle at a draught. During the pursuit of the king along the Boyanovka road, the Swedes defended themselves in front of the priest's house with bravery worthy of their renowned regiment. Though attacked suddenly and scattered very quickly, they rallied as quickly around their blue standard, for the reason that they were surrounded by a dense crowd. Not one of them asked for quarter, but standing horse to horse, shoulder to shoulder, they thrust so fiercely with their rapiers that for a time victory seemed to incline to their side. It was necessary either to break them again, which became impossible since a line of Polish horsemen surrounded them completely, or to cut them to pieces. Shandorovsky recognized the second plan as the better. Therefore, encircling the Swedes with a still closer ring, he sprang on them like a wounded falcon on a flock of long-billed cranes. A savage slaughter and press began. Sabres rattled against rapiers. Rapiers were broken on the hilts of sabres. Sometimes a horse rose like a dolphin above the sea waves and in a moment fell in the world of men and horses. Shouts ceased. There were heard only the cry of horses, the sharp clash of steel, gasping from the panting breasts of the knights. Uncommon fury had mastered the hearts of Poles and Swedes. They fought with fragments of sabres and rapiers. They closed with one another like hawks, caught one another by the hair, by moustaches, gnawed with their teeth. Those who had fallen from their horses and were yet able to stand, stabbed with their knives, horses in the belly and men in the legs. In the smoke, in the steam from horses, in the terrible frenzy of battle, Men were turned into giants and gave the blows of giants. Arms became clubs, sabres lightning. Steel helmets were broken at a blow, like earthen pots. Heads were cleft. Arms holding sabres were swept away. 
They hewed without rest, they hewed without mercy, without pity. From under the whirl of men and horses, blood began to flow along the yard in streams. The great blue standard was waving yet above the Swedish circle, but the circle diminished with each moment. As when harvesters attack grain from two sides, and the sickles begin to glitter, the standing grain disappears, and the men see one another more nearly each moment, thus did the Polish ring become ever narrower, and those fighting on one side could see the bent sabres fighting on the opposite side. Pan Shandorovsky was wild as a hurricane and ate into the Swedes as a famished wolf buries his jaws in the flesh of a freshly killed horse. But one horseman surpassed him in fury, and that was the youth who had first let them know that the Swedes were in Rudnik, and now had sprung in with the whole squadron on the enemy. The priest's colt, three years old, which till that time had walked quietly over the land, shut in by the horses, could not break out of the throng. You would have said he had gone mad like his master, with ears thrown back, with eyes bursting out of his head, with erect mane he pushed forward, bit and kicked. But the lad struck with his sabre as with a flail. He struck at random, to the right, to the left, straight ahead. His yellow forelock was covered with blood. The points of rapiers had been thrust into his shoulders and legs. His face was cut. But these wounds only roused him. He fought with madness, like a man who has despaired of life and wishes only to avenge his own death. But now the Swedish body had decreased like a pile of snow on which men are throwing hot water from every side. At last, around the king's standard, less than twenty men remained. The Polish swarm had covered them completely, and they were dying gloomily with set teeth. No hand was stretched forth, no man asked for mercy. Now in the crowd were heard voices, Seize the standard! The standard! When he heard this, the lad pricked his colt and rushed on like a flame. When every Swede had two or three Polish horsemen against him, the lad slashed the standard-bearer in the mouth. He opened his arms and fell on the horse's mane. The blue standard fell with him. The nearest Swede, shouting terribly, grasped after the staff at once. But the boy caught the standard itself, and pulling tore it off in a twinkle, wound it in a bundle, and holding it with both hands to his breast, began to shout to the sky, I have it! I won't give it! I have it! I won't give it! The last remaining Swedes rushed at him with rage. One thrust the flag through and cut his shoulder. Then a number of men stretched their bloody hands to the lad and cried, Give the standard! Give the standard! Shandorovsky sprang to his aid and commanded, Let him alone, he took it before my eyes. Let him give it to Charnitsky himself. Charnitsky is coming, cried a number of voices. In fact, from a distance trumpets were heard, and on the road from the side of the field appeared a whole squadron galloping to the priest's house. It was the louder squadron, and at the head of it rode Charnitsky himself. When the men had ridden up, seeing that all was over, they halted, and Shandorovsky's soldiers began to hurry toward them. Shandorovsky himself hastened with a report to the castellan, 
but he was so exhausted that at first he could not catch breath, for he trembled as in a fever, and the voice broke in his throat every moment. The king himself was here. I don't know whether he has escaped. He has, he has, answered those who had seen the pursuit. The standard is taken. There are many killed. Charnetsky, without saying a word, hurried to the scene of the struggle, where a cruel and woeful sight presented itself. More than two hundred bodies of Swedes and Poles were lying like a pavement, one at the side of the other, and often one above the other. Sometimes one held another by the hair, some had died biting or tearing one another with their nails, and some again were closed as in a brotherly embrace, or they lay one with his head on the breast of his enemy. Many faces were so trampled that there remained nothing human in them. Those not crushed by hoofs had their eyes open full of terror, the fierceness of battle, and rage. Blood spattered on the softened earth under the feet of Charnetsky's horse, which were soon red above the fetlocks. The odour of blood and the sweat of horses irritated the nostrils and stopped breath in the breast. The castellan looked on those corpses of men as the agriculturist looks on bound sheaves of wheat which are to fill out his stacks. Satisfaction was reflected on his face. He rode around the priest's house in silence, looked at the bodies lying on the other side, beyond the garden, then returned slowly to the chief scene. I see genuine work here, and I am satisfied with you, gentlemen. They hurled up their caps with bloody hands. Vivat Charnetsky! God grant another speedy meeting. Vivat, vivat! And the castellan said, You will go to the rear for rest. But who took the standard? Give the lad this way, cried Shandorovsky. Where is he? The soldiers sprang for him and found him sitting at the wall of the stable near the colt, which had fallen from wounds and was just breathing out his last breath. At the first glance, it did not seem that the lad would last long, but he held the standard with both hands to his breast. They bore him away at once and brought him before Charnetsky. The youth stood there barefoot with disordered hair, with naked breast, his shirt and his jacket in shreds, smeared with Swedish blood and his own, tottering, bewildered, but with unquenched fire in his eyes. Charnetsky was astounded at sight of him. How is this? asked he. Did he take the royal standard? With his own hand and his own blood, answered Shandorovsky. He was the first also to let us know of the Swedes, and afterward, in the thickest of the world, he did so much that he surpassed me and us all. It is truth, genuine truth, as if someone had written it, cried others. What is thy name? asked Charnetsky of the lad. Mihauko, whose art thou? The priests. Thou hast been the priests, but thou wilt be thy own, said Charnetsky. Mihauko heard not the last words, for from his wounds and the loss of blood he tottered and fell, striking the castellan's stirrup with his head. Take him and give him every care. 
I am the guarantee that at the first diet he will be the equal of you all in rank, as today he is the equal in spirit. He deserves it, he deserves it, cried the nobles. Then they took Mihauko on a stretcher and bore him to the priest's house. Charnetsky listened to the further report, which not Shandorovsky gave, but those who had seen the pursuit of the king by Rok Kowalski. He was wonderfully delighted with that narrative, so that he caught his head and struck his thighs with his hands, for he understood that after such an adventure, the spirit must fall considerably in Karl Gustav. Zagwoba was not less delighted, and putting his hands on his hips, said proudly to the knights, Ha! He is a robber, isn't he? If he had reached Karl, the devil himself could not have saved the king. He is my blood, as God is dear to me, my blood. In course of time, Zagwoba believed that he was Rokhkovalsky's uncle. Charnetsky gave orders to find the young knight, but they could not find him, for Rokh, from shame and mortification, had crept into a barn, and, burying himself in the straw, had fallen asleep so soundly that he came up with the squadron only two days later. But he still suffered greatly, and dared not show himself before the eyes of his uncle. His uncle, however, sought him out and began to comfort him. Be not troubled, Rock, said he. As it is, you have covered yourself with great glory. I have myself heard the Castellan praise you. To the eye of fool, said he, so that he looks as though he could not count three, and I see that he is a fiery cavalier who has raised the reputation of the whole army. The Lord Jesus has not blessed me, said Roch, for I got drunk the day before and forgot my prayers. Don't try to penetrate the judgments of God, lest you add blasphemy to other deeds. Whatever you can take on your shoulders, take but take nothing on your mind. If you do, you will fail. But I was so near that the sweat from his horse was flying to me. I should have cut him to the saddle. Uncle thinks that I have no reason whatever. Every creature, said Zagwoba, has its reason. You are a sprightly lad, Roch, and you will give me comfort yet more than once. God grant your sons to have the same reason in their fist that you have. I do not want that. I am Kowalski, and this is Pani Kowalski. End of chapter 32 Recording by David Granville Young